0: Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Pete Roque. I'm the director of code enforcement from 4Leaf. And uh, today we have a special, two special guests. Our first guest is uh, Lorena Souls with 4Leaf. She is the building services manager. She is stepping in for Cecilia Moila, who's unavailable uh, to be here today. Um, her and she will we'll also be stepping in on Friday for Rachel Patterson on the Code's Concepts channel uh, because both of them are preparing to go to Pittsburgh to the ICC uh, national uh, Business Meeting Conference. So with that, um, uh, she's here to fill in. She's helping out, and she's a great guest. And she was our previous guest. So if you haven't caught that episode, go ahead and log in and catch it. She's an expert in accessibility. And now our special, special guest is uh, Larry Brooks. He is from Alameda County. Uh, he is the director of the Alameda Healthy Homes uh, department Lead Poisoning Prevention Program. That is a mouthful. But that's who he is. And, you know, there's more Larry. Um, I've had the pleasure and the opportunity to serve with him on the, uh, on the state board. I also have worked with him on the uh, California Healthy uh, Homes Coalition, which he puts in a lot of time and effort in making sure that um, he advocates for um, healthy housing. And also he is very, very versed on uh, childhood lead poisoning prevention. And with that, I'm gonna let Larry introduce himself and take it away, Larry. Well, good morning and thank you for having me. It's
1: really an honor to be here. And I really appreciate the fact that you are putting on these types of webcasts because I feel that this is really the future of code enforcement. We we need to be able to spread the word about the work that we do. And certainly social media is gonna be one of the major platforms in which to do that. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, and I, I and I I know that the time is going to go swiftly here. So actually, I'm going to say up front, Pete, I hope to come back because <laughs> there's so many topics that I want to be able to talk about, you know, proactive rental inspections, cooperative compliance, you know, code enforcement officer appreciation week is coming up in just a couple of weeks, you know, and you mentioned the California Healthy Housing Coalition where you've done You did some tremendous work there, Uh, so I mean, there's just a lot of stuff we can talk about, and I I know that the time will go by quickly. So I'm already putting my my request out there. Let me come back.
0: (laughs) No, it's funny because you know, Lorena did a a whole show on accessibility for one hour, and I've sat there with Lorena for eight hours, and she only covered a portion of what she knows which is amazing. And, you know, sitting in meetings with you, I mean, you can talk about lead prevention all day, all day and all night and talk about statistics and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and, and one of the things that we love doing on this show is giving people a little bit of, of a taste of what we as code enforcement officers do. And, and you know, maybe putting together some workshops down the road uh, to be able to explain and have people understand it. Um, you invited me a couple of years ago to do a one-hour uh, training on California um, uh, uh, led uh, RRP, which is uh, repair, remediate, and uh, paint. I, I totally forget yeah. yeah, and you know it was a it was a, it, it was a grant that um, you helped facilitate with the um, Environmental Protection Agency, and we got a lot of code enforcement officers. Um, uh, what do you call it? Certified in RRP, and also you're working nationally and doing that same thing with the EPA. So. Thank you for that. And we really appreciate that. But before we get into that, we want to know how, you know, when, uh, you know, your dream of becoming the lead expert when you're a three-year-old kid, you know, chewing on the pencil leads. <laughs> 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 I want to be <laughs> an expert in lead. How did that, how did, how did uh, Larry Brooks become Larry Brooks?
1: Uh, yes. The the origin story here. I, I got to listen to your origin story. I really liked it. And you You did a wonderful job in terms of explaining how sometimes things happen for a reason and we end up in places where we just never knew we would um, and it ends up being the right place. So, uh, and and you didn't even mention your military experience. Thank you for your service, sir. Um, My origins were, uh, I graduated from Cal State East Bay with a master's in public administration and actually thought I was gonna be a hospital administrator. And my first job with Alameda County was as a human resources analyst assigned to the uh, healthcare services agency. So both the county hospitals, I was working there. Um, And I thought after a while that I needed to get some experience in upper administration. So I wanted to become a county administrative analyst. And it just seemed like I wasn't getting anywhere, you know, and I I really kind of felt like in many ways, I was you know, being discriminated against. I was being told that I was I was too young. I was a diamond in the rough and that kind of stuff. And I was looking around and saying, wait a minute, this doesn't add up in terms of I'm looking at other people who are getting these jobs and they uh, don't seem to even have the qualifications I have. So I, I decided to uh, the Bay Area was getting pretty expensive and i wanted to buy a home and have a family and sacramento was calling me i went up there to uh, take an exam really just a practice exam uh, for another job that i was seeking and i ended up passing the exam there and went ahead and made that leap of faith and went there uh, as a human resources analyst within less than a year they promoted me to the County Administrative Analyst that I thought I wanted to be. (laughs) Then three years later, I realized I didn't wanna be that. (laughs) And you know, lo and behold, uh, uh, Mel Knight from the Director of Environmental Health Department came to me and said, hey, look, the County is under a requirement to establish a housing code enforcement program. And I, I don't need a code enforcement officer what I really need is someone to manage the program. I need someone who has your type of budgetary and personnel experience in order to bring the team together and run the program, because we need to get it started right away. And it just so happens that he had already selected the team for me to manage. And and this was really uh, striking because we're talking 1993 uh, Sacramento County and my whole team, was ladies from the, uh, environmental health department. I had all women registered environmental health specialists that formed the county's first housing code enforcement program. And so I was always, you know, proud of that. I mean, these were some, excuse my language, kick ass women who went out there and built that program. And while they were doing it, they discovered, uh, children were being lead poisoned there in Sacramento. And they came to me and they said, will you find the money to send us to training on uh, lead hazard detection? They have these uh, devices called X-ray fluorescent devices, or XRFs. They look like a highway patrolman's radar gun. And you can go into a home and point them at surfaces, and they'll let you know if there's lead uh, in the paint. And they'll let you know. How much lead is in that paint, and is if it's actually at a level where it creates a danger for children? And so I said, sure, let's try it. You know, and we were able to find the money and send them to training, and we were able to add that dimension to their uh, housing rental housing inspections. They could do lead as well, and uh, so again, they became the first, as far as I know, the first to be inspecting rental units and also inspecting rental units for lead. And we're, again, we're talking early 1990s. Well, unfortunately, they were doing a great job and another county administrative analyst decided that the program would be more effective if we transferred it to the Community Development and Planning Department and take it away from those ladies and train the zoning enforcement vehicle abatement officers to do housing inspections and so uh, unfortunately I was ordered to leave them and go and create a brand new team and and they were kind enough to come over for about six seven months and and train those guys over there to do their work which I felt was really disappointing and there was a lot of politics involved in that which I I'm sure we're gonna talk about politics and code enforcement at some point in time, but there was a lot of politics behind that. And it was argued that it would save a lot of money. It ended up, it really didn't save a lot of money because as soon as those guys started learning what those ladies were doing, they immediately uh, went to their unions and demanded pay raises. And many of them started transferring and finding other jobs in nearby jurisdictions because they Felt that they were underpaid. Um, but we, we got that program up and running, and eventually, uh, after we were able to bring in some building inspectors and provide them with some additional training, uh, they actually were able, to, with the support of their union, to uh, become classified as code enforcement officers. So they became the county's first quote code enforcement officers, but I always, uh, make people aware of the fact that the first, you know, actual rental housing inspection team were those registered environmental health specialists who also had gotten building inspection training. The The uh, team there in the county planning department eventually became the county's first proactive rental inspection program, because remember the initial orders we were under was just to create a uh, program for responding to tenant complaints. And we felt that we would be much more effective if we could be proactive. And interestingly enough, we actually ended up getting the support of the rental housing association because most people thought that the landlords would be the ones that would shoot it down. Uh, and they did resist somewhat, but oh, we were able to win them over and get that program going. Um, Fast forward here, I ended up uh, spending a period of time working for uh, West Sac Police Department. I went over there uh, to to manage their code enforcement program, which was really interesting to uh, having ran a program in environmental health and then running one in planning and community development to then run one in the police department. Uh, but, but it was a great experience uh, working with them and um, because of some, some family issues uh, back here in the Bay Area uh, and by then, I you know did what I really set out to do going to Sacramento where there was more affordable housing, had got my home, had raised my family and then it was time to come back and look after my mom uh, and, I, and I have a disabled brother, so I, I ended up getting an opportunity to come to work for the Healthy Homes Department. Um, And when uh, Maricela Neves Foster hired me into the program, she said this program is designed to uh, primarily address um, child debt poisoning prevention, but we also are growing into addressing other issues related to health and housing, such as asthma and mold and um, aging in place. And so uh, I want you to start thinking in terms of how you can apply your code enforcement knowledge to the work that we're doing here. Uh, And so I ended up engrossing myself into understanding the whole concepts of of health and housing, uh, which really isn't new when you really look at the history of of housing. I mean, going back to uh, when even Florence Nightingale uh, Uh, those who follow history, she was the nurse who first associated, you know, housing conditions with people's health. Uh, So it's not really a new concept, but it's something that within the Healthy Homes Department, we've been able to do a lot of uh, research, validation studies to actually prove the connections between health and housing. And uh, as you know, Pete, through the California Healthy Housing Coalition, we now advocate for a lot of legislation in order to uh, assist communities in terms of addressing health and housing, in particular code enforcement, uh, which you, you've been a tremendous help in terms of what we did to get code enforcement to do uh, address mold. Uh, that, was, that was a huge step for us uh, in terms of I worked with Senator Deborah Ortiz in the early 90s to get the United States' first Toxic Mold Act passed, but it fell short because it didn't have a code enforcement component in it. And so, you know, 20 some odd years later, you know, with the help of you and C.C. and others, we were able to get that uh, portion added to the state law. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So I want to thank you for, for that. Um, and then there's another thing that we've researched a lot in healthy homes department is the thing called cooperative compliance as opposed to, you know, our, our traditional code enforcement compliance. Um, You know a lot of times we we go out and and i know i've heard you say this a lot pete in terms of we we have all these tools of the trade you know we, we can write up administrative citations you know we can put liens on property you know certificates of nuisance we can take people to nuisance abatement hearings there's receiverships injunctive relief there's all these different tools that we can go out and tell a person that we can apply in order to get them to you know, quote, voluntarily comply. But but it's really at the end of the day, uh, if we resolve the case, that wasn't really voluntary compliance, that was enforced compliance. And w- what we learned in Healthy Homes is there's many other ways that you can bring about uh, what we call the cooperative compliance uh, solution to a case. And, and so I do do lectures on cooperative compliance uh, now. Um, when I'm speaking to, like, the National League of Cities or uh, National Center for Healthy Housing, or when a couple hours from now I'll be speaking to Senator Dianne Feinstein's staff, um, and we'll be talking about how do you help build an environment of cooperative compliance. And it really boils down to you have to provide resources to code enforcement officers uh, besides the traditional tools, or, you know, some people would call them weapons, we 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 have to do better in terms of supporting code enforcement in order to create that cooperative compliance uh, environment. So uh, rather long-winded origin story, but but that's it.
0: <laughs> well, Moby Dick wasn't you know a little thin book either, you know, <laughs> but but it was a great book. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, coming coming from you know a place where one of the reasons that that we have this show is for people to understand that anything's possible if you if you have your forces joined together mold for example when when you describe mold you know that that was in i I believe in 2006 2007 2000 around that area we started to push for uh recognizing mold as a substandard housing condition and we advocated and we advocated and eventually it caught the attention of a senator and or assembly person and we were able to pass that bill. There's different bills, but at at the end of the day, it always comes to education, you know, uh, folks with mold, uh, pest infestation, and all those other tools and and being in a healthy housing, people sometimes forget that code enforcement isn't just exterior nuisances, also interior nuisances. And so, you know, there's a lot of code enforcement divisions throughout the nation that say, we don't touch the inside. We only touch the outside. And, and, you know, you are a great example of how somebody can, you know, address the inter- internal uh, living conditions of, of a home to benefit themselves and those people residing in those homes. Um, Lorena?
2: I'm talking, you know, you guys were talking about mold and I just want to say um, or, or ask rather, is there anything that prevents a sale of a house that um, has a ton of mold? And, and the reason why I asked this, you know, because talk about mold, um, I was first exposed to um, what mold is when my husband and I were trying to buy a house years and years ago. And my son has severe asthma. Like there was one year where we were in the hospital like eight times. And, and that's a lot, you know, when... Um, so you have to take your child to the hospital to get treat, breathing treatment. So we went to go look at this house one morning and it was really moist outside. So when we went in, the house was seemed fine, but we went into this one particular bedroom, which I had already imagined this was going to be my son's room and it was going to be great. And on the wall, it was like totally all black. And I was like, God, what is that? And it smelled so humid and really nasty. And then I started kind of not feeling so good. And it was probably more than halfway up on the, on the wall. And so coming back to that, is there anything out there that we can um, maybe um, inform people like, Hey, like these are very substandard conditions and maybe prevent even sales of houses that are in that um, condition. I I don't know.
1: Yeah. I I think that uh, you touch upon a real good point in terms of real estate disclosures. I mean, we, we passed laws that require that um, property owners disclose to potential buyers that uh, the home may have hidden layers of lead-based paint. You know, the house was built prior to 1978. Uh, lead was, you know, uh, banned from paint in 1978. Uh, but, but we know that, you know, the lead layers are still there. People paint over them. And so uh, it took, quite a bit of time just like pete described how it took you know nearly a decade for us to get that that mold legislation passed uh it, it took many years to get a requirement that real estate disclose uh lead paint hazards they're also starting to do that now with regards to mold um, okay. and it should be in the disclosures one good example is like and i actually have some lived experience with this i i had a friend who was getting a a roof done. And when they tore off all the shingles on the roof and the the felt and the plywood and stuff, they uh, were supposed to cover it with tarp at the end of the day, so that when they came back the next day, in case it rained in the middle of the night, there'd be no damage. Well, they got lazy and they looked at the weather report and they said, oh, there's nothing, no rain in sight here. And they left it uncovered. And during the middle of the night, we actually ended up with a thunderstorm and all that water poured into the house and got into the walls. And so, of course, they had to bring in low remediation specialists. They had to tear out all the drywall, all the insulation, dry everything out and just literally rebuild the house. Well, that was something that had to be kept in the disclosures because if they you know missed anything or uh, or maybe later on maybe they thought they corrected all of the moisture water damage and later on uh someone went in there and was exposed to uh mold then th- they could turn around and sue the sellers of the home for not disclosing it when they came in to buy it uh, so all of that history is essential and i think that's why i really have a great deal of respect for the um, uh, home inspectors, because lots of times now people will hire home inspectors to inspect the house before they put it up for sale in order to make sure that they're disclosing everything to potential buyers. But, but it's still an area of real estate law that I think we need to look further into, uh, because mold is still pretty much an unknown factor Uh, with regards to uh, health conditions, even when we, you know, uh, Senator um, Ortiz and I were trying to pass the first Toxic Mold Act. Uh, we were speaking to all the scientists at the time and they were saying, well, it's really hard to say when mold is actually a health problem or not, you know, and then there's all these different types of mold and the mold is always spores are always in the air. And so how can you really enforce it? And so that that's why it was really important for you know people like Pete to get involved and just look at it from a logical perspective that, OK, yeah, mold is everywhere but leave it up to the officer's discretion to determine when it may be a health hazard. Um, and and that was a big leap forward. And I think that we, we still need to go even further than that in terms of some code enforcement officers now are trained, you know, to use moisture meters, others are not. And I think that's something we need to make sure that we provide opportunities for code enforcement officers to get more training, to get more equipment, uh, the infrared cameras, the another way of being able to detect if there's moisture behind the walls. Uh, Because we, as you pointed out, sometimes you saw the mold on the wall, but in many cases, the mold is on the interior up against the insulation. You can't see it, but you can smell it, you know. Yes. But that's not enough evidence if you try to go, um, say you want to go to a nuisance abatement hearing or something, and you want to present that as part of the evidence, because maybe there's a person who is a hoarder. And because of their hoarding, they've also created a situation in which mold is growing. Um, This may be kind of gross, but there are, I've seen pictures of cases where uh, the person was an animal hoarder. And because the animals were always urinating on the wall, all that moisture was getting into the wall and causing mold growth. So you're going after the hoarder and you want to be able to present evidence uh, say to a judge in a receivership situation that there's mold. Well, those those infrared camera pictures will help you to present that visual in order to sell uh, your case. Uh, we need to provide code enforcement officers with those types of uh, equipment and, and training in order to use them.
0: And one thing, Larry, that we see is, you know, we, we you know, me as a, a code enforcement administrator, manager, you know, I, I hear sometimes people are like, we don't enforce mold or we don't do this. And to me, it's it's I, I sometimes think like, why don't we do it? I mean, it's there Um, I me mean, when I, I can walk into a place and my 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 body just breaks out in a rash when there's mold, like a lot of which is weird. Same thing with uh, pest infestation. I have like hypersensitive uh, skin. I'm not saying I'm a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just happens like I'm very sensitive to certain Types of moisture. It, it's, it's just weird, and I break out in like hives, so I just got to get out of there real fast. And but that's how my body acts, and and you know, there's a you know, I see a lot of residents that complain about mold and health issues, and you know, it's hard for them to prove. And but what a lot of times people don't understand is mold can be caused by moisture around the windows, uh, leaks on. I mean, unseen leaks on the roof that it gets into the baseboards, I mean, the, the attic, um, you know, so there's a lot of um, potential sources of mold that people don't realize. It could be an unseen leak, like you're saying, in the interior, um, you know, some some people are required to install sprinkler systems and there could be some leakage somewhere, and you know, and people don't realize that that's in the air and it can affect, have long-term effects similar to lead. A lot of people don't realize that there's long term effects to this. You might be exposed today and have long term effects. And I think for code enforcement officers to get this type of training, uh, like the RRP training, was such a great. I mean, I learned a lot on the RRP training where, you know, I learned enough where you're like, hey, you're good at this. I'm like, oh, thanks. And you had me teach an hour, uh, you know, in different locations. But uh, to me, it's so important to learn these new tools because folks like Lorena that you go into these homes, she might not be aware of what what lead what lead can do to a person, or even mold can do to a person. You know, she she had a child who had um, respiratory issues because because of you know because of the sensitivity of any type of moisture, but same thing with lead. Um, can you touch a little bit about your experience uh, with? Uh, with lead inside homes. Oh, yes. Uh, based, <laughs> <There you go. laughs>
1: they, they, based in Oakland, California, where the child dead poisoning rate is higher than Flint, Michigan, and people don't know that. And uh, and it's because of aging housing. Again, you know, if a house is built prior to 1978, it's presumed to have lead in it. Um, and it, in terms of educating the public, it's it's really important because I'm always running into people who keep saying that, oh, they took care of it in 1978. And so you you have to then try to connect the dots for them and say, okay, but that house over there was built prior to 1978. So you know that at some point in time it was painted with lead-based paint. And so those layers are still there. They've been painted over, but over time, you know, with weather and just wear and tear, especially on doors and windows, what we call friction surfaces, you're going to reveal those layers. They're going to get reexposed, and the the flakes, the lead uh, paint powder, the dust uh, will cause children to be get lead poisoned, especially small children because they're the ones that are usually crawling on the walls and, I mean, on the floors and pulling themselves up on the wall and into the window seal in order to look out, and they're getting all this uh, paint dust on their fingers. And I've been told that lead paint tastes sweet. Now, I never wanted to try that out and prove it to myself, but I have had some other people who were brave enough to do that. And they said, yeah, it is sweet. So you've got these kids who are licking their hands and fingers and they are getting um, you know, uh, exposed to this lead, which goes into the body and it actually will mimic iron and as a result of that, um, you know, the the body will end up absorbing it, thinking that it's something good, and it gets into the bones, it gets into the organs, and more importantly, it's getting into the brain tissues, and it's causing the brain cells to die. And so that's why uh, children between the ages of you know infancy to age 6 when the brain cells are developing are the ones who are most victimized because they end up uh, you know licking that that paint on those paint chips or getting the dust on their fingers and it it doesn't take much exposure in order to cause those brain cells to die and so you know imagine a kid who is an infant learning how to walk and they end up getting exposed to those small elements of lead and by the time they get to even before they get to school they're already having some delayed learning issues and they're not you know learning to speak as rapidly as they should at their age or by the time they get to school they're having trouble understanding instructions and slow to learn how to read and then this ends up affecting them for their entire lives now the most severely exposed kids are the ones who are going to end up in special education classes but many kids will go on through regular schooling but they will not be able to reach their their highest potential because they will have trouble they will not be your a plus students they might end up being your c and d students and so they struggle and maybe they don't even get through high school and maybe they end up in uh, getting involved in the criminal justice system i mean you can just keep seeing how this whole situation blossoms just from that exposure when they were little so that's why the the work we do is so important and that's why having proactive i'm going to get on my soapbox here sorry proactive rental inspection programs is one of the best models for preventing child lead poisoning. You know, going back to those ladies back in 1993 who went and learned how to use the XRF in order to go out there and determine, is there enough lead in these walls, you know, on these doors, on these door frames to actually be a danger to these children? That's where we need to go. If we can't get XRF training, one of the people I consider a rock star is a, a guy named Gary Kirkmeyer from the city of Rochester, New York. Their code enforcement officers learned how to become what they call uh, lead wipe technicians. So they went and learned, got the training in order to be able to get these wipes that they just run across surfaces and then they send them to the lab. And then the lab will analyze it and then let them know if there's lead hazards in those units. That program has been up and running for over ten years now. They brought their child that poisoning rate down ninety percent.
2: Larry, I have a I have a question. So, um, I, for years, I worked in a beach community, and there was a huge lawsuit that went on about um, the during the construction. There was a lot of rains, and um, they said that there was like mold, and it caused. Um, the, the owners of the property felt that that mold caused um, their child to have autism. So going back to lead, um, what are some of the effects that children get or like you say mental, um, maybe they have some mental disabilities or something that come from that, but is there anything else that, um, that's been I guess, determine like for sure, like, oh, it's autism that's caused by lead or maybe it's this other uh, illness that's caused by lead. Has there anything been determined as to what that is?
1: Yeah, good good point, Um, because many of the children who end up lead exposed will show uh, those types of traits that are associated with autism or other types of organic uh, brain damage, uh, Conditions, but as I mentioned, you know the lead is mistaken uh, by the body and and as something that is good and nutritious, and it's absorbed into the bone. So uh, there is plenty of of, uh, medical research that uh, backs up the fact that children who have been lead poisoned, they will have weakened bones. They will end up with diseases. Some will end up with diseases associated um, with. Uh, the skeletal structure, Uh, the organs also are impacted. And so children will grow up and they will have, uh, you know, uh, diseases associated with uh, kidney dysfunction or even heart. Um, There is a linkage between lead poisoning as children and and becoming adults with uh, uh, high blood pressure. Uh, There uh, are a number of pre-existing conditions that research has now been able to tie to the child having gotten lead poison that affects them in adulthood. In fact, I I was doing a study. We we do what's called uh, risk assessments where we collect a lot of data on housing conditions, you know, poverty, uh, ethnicity, age, a number of things, and we put it all together and we build a map so that we can identify where the high-risk areas are within the jurisdiction. And of course, most of the maps will show that the poorest neighborhoods are the ones with the highest child lead poisoning rates or the highest risk factor for child lead poisoning or the highest rit- risk factor for uh, aging adults to fall and get injured. But here's the thing that was really shocking to me. When this whole COVID-19 thing hit, I went to the public health department and said, can you give me a risk assessment map as to who is getting lead poison? I mean, who is getting COVID-19 and who is dying from it? And do you know that that data was parallel to our lead poisoning data? The neighborhoods where the highest child lead poisoning rates existed Were the same neighborhoods where you had the highest rates of COVID-19 infection and the highest rates of death. So, I mean, you you can see this whole cradle-to-grave narrative in which people are getting lead poisoned as children as a result of the lead poisoning affecting bones and tissue and and brain cells. They then end up with these pre-existing conditions, which then make them more susceptible to COVID-19. Yes.
2: I'm not surprised that that data shows that.
1: Yeah. And the same can be true in terms of mold and asthma. I mean, again, there's a pre-existing condition that can be traced back to housing conditions, which we could have intercepted it if we were more proactive in our inspection programs. And and, and I'll speak up in defense, I think, of the code enforcement profession. It's not that code enforcement officers don't want to do that work. It's that many jurisdictions just do not want to provide the resources in order to do it. I mean, many jurisdictions don't even want to provide much resources for code enforcement officers to even do a reactive rental inspection program, unless not a proactive. And then uh, another leap forward, a proactive inspection program that actually looks for lead and mold. I mean, that <laughs> that's very, very rare. And that's where I think we have to become more like Pete. Got to become advocates. We can't just go out there and do the work. We have to advocate for how we can do the work better.
0: And, you know, code enforcement, we're all over the spectrum. You know, sometimes I, like today, having you on here opens a lot of people's eyes on what could be possible. You know, mold, mold inspections, uh, lead inspections, I mean, they're crucial. People don't realize how prevalent lead, lead is. For example, it's in the air. What you know, a lot of people are like, "Well, I'm going to paint my house. I want the neighborhood to look pretty." They start, you know, scraping paint. They may not realize that they're just now exposing all sorts of lead particles into the into the surrounding neighborhoods. You know, and then I have a quick confession because when I was a kid, I used to sleep on a bunk bed, and I used to chew on the drywall and the 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 paint um, the painted sill you know that yeah so that explains a lot for me <laughs> but um and and yes i i remember i used to chew on it it was sweet so i you know i'm i'm very lucky that i didn't develop any sort of uh, any sort of uh, issue uh on doing that but you know it was just a little paint you know I, I must have chewed through the lead within the first year that i was doing it when i was like six seven years old and you know and of course, I blame the dog that chewed <laughs> on the on the drywall. I don't know why I did that, but as a kid, you just it, I just did it, and I don't understand why. And this is normal. And 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 when I say normal, it's uh, something that kids do. It it just I don't know why I did it. I just did it. I chewed on the dry on drywall. I chewed on the on the uh, on the windowsill, and I do remember it was uh, you know I don't whether it was lead or not. I just remember it was paint flakes. Yeah. And 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 that could have been, you know, it, it could have been anything. So it, let me see. And here we have somebody. I'm a supervising an environmental and do a lot of lead and mold work. I think lead and mold is a great subject to talk about. Not a lot of people really know about the health issues that can cause human body in the long run. Mainly new. Well, thank you, Francisco.
1: Absolutely yeah. right. And 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 you know, Pete. In terms of, you know, you're you're one of those brilliant minds that I'm always coming to and and asking uh, as a reference (laughs) on things related to code enforcement and asking you to teach classes and stuff. Um, but, But the reality is many folks get exposed to lead. And as I said, one of the things it does is it creates some brain cells from developing. So you can survive it. I mean, we've had some cases where the exposure was so intense that it actually killed children. Uh, many instances where it left them severely disabled but the majority of folks can be exposed but because you lose some of those brain cells you don't get to reach your fullest potential and you don't even know it when, lots of times when i lecture i will tell people that right now the next bill gates or stephen jobs or the next kamala harris or you name it somebody famous A person like that is being born right now. Within the next five to six years, they'll get exposed to lead, and they'll never become that person that they could have become. So, think of it in that way. It's kind of sad, Pete, because you're brilliant. But guess what? You could have been even more of a genius, but because of the lead (laughs) exposure. And and that's again, whereas code enforcement officers, if if we can see a kid while we're inspecting a unit, and there's scraping the walls with their hands and licking their fingers, we can stop it right there because we understand the connection between health and housing. If we go into a home and there's a child there and we see them using an inhaler and we can ask you know, their parents, that, does the child have asthma? Okay, I'm gonna zero in a little bit more on moisture intrusion issues and mold while I'm inspecting these units. It just takes a little bit of education and we can start making the connections to health and housing, and that makes us even better code enforcement officers. And when, and when we can use a cooperative compliance model where it's not just, okay, I'm going to write you up for substandard conditions. But, hey, the bad news is you've got some substandard conditions here, but under a cooperative compliance model, I'm going to be able to actually supply you with some grants to do some lead paint remediation work. I'm actually going to connect you with contractors who've gone through the EPA one day renovation repair painting rule course so they'll know how to do this safely so as not to make it worse for you or your neighbors. That's what the cooperative compliance model is all about. You're just trying to create those types of partnerships as opposed to just using the tools or weapons that we have as code enforcement officers to close a case. So it's a really important thing for us to be talking about. But again, it takes advocacy because I still think might be my own bias, but I still think code enforcement is still considered kind of like the unwanted stepchild of the bureaucracy until something comes up and then people want it fixed and they want it to go away. Uh, There's still so many programs that every year that there's some type of uh, economic setback or recession or whatever, that they're, they're the first on the cutting blocks they're the first ones to be laid off. And we have to change that attitude. And the only way we do that is we can't just go around and be proud of the fact that we're doing this good work and we're sacrificing for our communities that we serve. But we have to be a little egotistical about it. And we have to go and tell legislators what we do and why we do it and how we can do it better with their support. That's, that's why I like the fact that you know CC came up with the whole Code Enforcement Officer Appreciation Week and, and I hope that, um, that that can become a Code Enforcement Officer Appreciation Month. And I hope it can not just be in California, but I hope that we can make it something that's recognized nationally.
0: And, and we do have, um, uh, for through the American Association of Code Enforcement, we actually, October is the Officer Appreciation Month. And so it, it, it actually was a proclamation through uh, President Obama that, you know, we actually got recognized as a profession. Uh, to be a, a appreciation month, and and I think the you know the appreciation of code enforcement. I try to do that daily with the amount of posts. I, everybody on LinkedIn is probably tired of my posts. They're like, "Who is this guy? All he does is talk about code enforcement." Because we're so like you said, I don't feel like a stepchild. I, and, may, and maybe I do, you know. But end of the day, we have so much to offer that people don't realize. How much, you know, and I want the next person in, you know, in Missouri listening to you saying, wow, that is a good program. How do I start a program like that? And I think getting these folks um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a a legislator on here that we we said it's important for us to be known as the essential employees that we are. And we're not a luxury because that's why we're first on the chopping block. Because people consider us a luxury versus a necessity. And I think once the uh, people realize how much work goes into keeping people safe, you know, building inspectors, they come in to make sure it's built properly. We're there to make sure it's maintained. and maintain maintenance includes healthy housing, it includes the pest infestations because that's another portion of healthy housing that people totally forget. The, you know, because the um, droppings from insects, they cause respiratory problems too. And people don't, you know, one of the saddest things, I've, I've been in homes, is apartment complexes, where, and this is why um, proactive rental en- enforcement programs are important. I, I've walked in, seen mold, seen chipping paint, and uh, uh, like an infant with roaches crawling up his face. That is such a sad... And, and the and the sad part is that's all the, the, the tenants could afford, you know, just because they can't afford, you know, a, a luxurious place doesn't mean they have to live in those conditions where it can, you know, affect their health. Right. No, excellent point. Excellent point.
1: I mean, you, you, you mentioned the thing with yeah insects and, you know, like rodent droppings, triggering asthma. I've been into places where it was pigeons in the attic because they didn't close off the uh, ex- access points in the roof. In fact, the roof was in pretty bad shape, so they also had mold. But the kids were actually getting sick because of the poop from the pigeons, which can cause a very serious lung disease. Yes. Uh, so so again, the code enforcement officers, that's what I love about you, you folks. I'm always talking about you younger folks, because I'm, I'm into succession planning and, and I love the leadership that I see within You know, uh, you, Pete, Rachel, uh, Cece, Marcus. I mean, I just see all these folks who are are great leaders, who are great teachers as well. And we do have to train the next generation uh, and not just train them to replace us, but to be better than us. And part of being better is in terms of providing them with more of that academic knowledge as far as health and housing. And the history is important, too, because like you said, in terms of the the, the stepchild uh, comment we evolved out of law enforcement i mean if you go and you read through the history you go back to the days of the wild wild west the first code enforcement officers was the local sheriff and over a period of time it evolved to where you know you had building inspectors uh who were taking care of things but you also ended up with things being passed on to code enforcement officers too Sometimes from building inspection, sometimes from fire. I mean, again, as needs came up, the sheriff used to be the local dog catcher back in the day. <laughs> Some historical documents. The the you know, the the sheriff was the person who was responsible for taking care of junk and rubbish. I mean we have these roots that we do need to take pride in, and we need, need to be able to tell people some of that history so that even when, you know, the, the police officers and the firefighters are wondering, who are you, what do you do, we can tell them, we actually came
0: from you. And, and you know, what's, uh, what's funny, um, so we we, we at Fort Leaf just created a um, uh, field training officer uh, program that it's it's free for everybody it's still in the beta stages where we're having people test it out but one of the components is you know why is code enforcement in the fire department the planning department the building department and you know it's not because nobody wants us we're just so multifaceted and so functional because yes we're enforcing land use we could be in the housing department we can be in the health department and the police department i mean we're so multifaceted, and that's so interesting and them and you know, you have a lot of standalone units because you know, um, maybe the police route isn't always a cookie cutter approach to code enforcement because you know, you follow um the letter of the law in in, in police officer work, and sometimes we can't do that. We're not gonna lock a, a grandma up for you know, not taking the trash cans in, you know, we just, like, we we have to be flexible and we have to be um, that's you know, we we have to be just. Better stewards of our codes, you know, and we have to, you know, with somebody with lead paint, we're not going to punish the tenant. We're going to say, hey, landlord, you need to fix this. There's an education portion that we have to do to make people understand, landlord. It's not that we're making you spend money. It's in your best interest for these folks not to get sick, because at the the end of the day, if if you are causing this condition, you could be liable for this, and you know, it's it's better to spend a couple hundred, maybe a thousand dollars on, you know, on fixing this versus losing your property because you got sued because you neglected to, to address an issue that could have totally been preventable. Yeah,
2: absolutely. You know, um, Larry, can you just share with us, like, so for jurisdictions that are watching this, how, and they have their quote enforcement teams, how they go about obtaining those XR, I think you call them XRF.
1: Group. XRFs. Yeah. X-ray fluorescent devices. It's something that you can, you can purchase, but you you have to go through training in order to know how to use it properly. And, and is, there are,
2: is that there training are, part of like the, the purchase? They say, okay, so you've purchasing these, um, these devices and now you need to take this like three months training or is, is it all, does that all go together? How to, how do how does one look into that and bring that I, into their toolbox?
1: I like that idea that maybe we need some laws passed because right now, yeah, you can go on Google and you can, you can purchase an XRF and no one's saying that you need to go and get training to use it, but you do need to training in order <laughs> to use it properly. And I mean, and they're not cheap. I mean, XRFs cost, you know, twelve, thirteen thousand $13,000. You know, the first one I bought was over $20,000. I mean, so <laughs> when you're spending that kind of money, you want to make sure that you're trained to use it right. Uh, because you will be challenged in court if you go and try to present yourself as an expert witness. And and maybe, and we've had cases where tenants sued landlords for not addressing the lead hazards. And as a result, the children got lead poisoned. And, you know, the first thing that the defense attorneys are gonna do is they're gonna, you know, challenge, uh, you know, uh, your expertise, you know, did you go get training? you know, did you get this XRF calibrated? Because it, it has to be maintained like anything else. So when was the last time it got calibrated? They're going to try to attack you. So that's one of the other reasons you want to get that training to make sure that if you go in there and you say, you know, I was able to, to, to determine these lead hazards based on my use of an XRF device, then you want to be able to explain you know that also we went to the
2: training yeah and it, it seems like for um a piece of machinery or technology that that is that pricey right that they would automatically have you have some kind of training that go with it um so are there any like grants that maybe um government municipal government can seek to for this maybe this um lead program in, in their jurisdiction and maybe get a grant to purchase that along with some training that goes together? Is, or is there anything out there for them to look into?
1: I love that you asked that question because that's one of the things like the California Healthy Housing Coalition is involved in because we're advocating for more grants to be made available. You know, yes. the, the very first XRF trainings that I sent my very first team to it was paid for through a grant. And then the grant disappeared. Uh, some years later, there was some legislation passed um, and I think it's in the health and safety code for what's called the community and inf- um, community code enforcement program grant. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was another one called the uh, uh, code enforcement incentive grant and those were ways that code enforcement uh groups could you know get money uh in order to do some of these types of innovative things and that money went away and so we're trying to advocate uh to the legislature to make those types of grants available again and i think at the you know the county and city level we really need to get uh community folks to rise up and demand uh, that money be made available. My, my program only exists because the state released a child lead poisoning rate report uh, that showed that Oakland's rate was higher than Flint and the people in the community, um, community organizers in a group called People United for a Better Life in Oakland, Pueblo for short went to the county board of supervisors and demanded that money be put aside in order to create a lead poisoning prevention program. And it was because of their activism that the county eventually passed an ordinance that created what they called a a county service uh, uh, assessment fee, where every pre-1978 unit has to pay $10 into a fund that funds our program. Which is the reason why I have that long title, uh, you know, uh, Healthy Homes and Child Lead Poisoning Prevention. <laughs> because really, Child lead Poisoning Prevention was our, our origin story as a result of Pueblo's community activism. But as we evolved into the Healthy Homes Department, where we began to address more things than lead, we, we let that subtitle remain out of respect for those community folks who created
0: our department.
2: That's wonderful. That's really good.
0: And Larry, one of the reasons that we brought you on, on, on this program is because you're a very um, prominent figure in this area in code enforcement nationally, not just in California, but nationally. You work with the EPA, with HUD, you work with various different groups and and just talk. And, and it's funny because we're almost hitting the hour and see how quick it went. We <laughs> really touched on subject little, little, little subjects here and there. I mean. We can talk about lead all day long and for weeks and same thing with uh, mold and pest infestation. But one thing that some states have or uh, if they don't have, California has a very good model, the California Healthy Homes Coalition, where you have code enforcement, health departments, uh, community advocate groups. You have um, uh, you, the Ameri- the apartment associations, you have senators, assembly people that all come together for a common interest of creating um, healthier homes for California residents. And that is such a good model. Um, when you have advocates from all sorts of walks of life, it's, it makes it a little bit easier to pass certain types of legislation as long as you're communicating the proper message that this is why it's important. This is the benefit to your constituents. That's, that's the message. When you throw, hey, this is we we need this, and you don't give them a reason why or the benefit, you're always going to have an uphill battle, you know, and I, and I see associations struggle with this and, um, you know, agencies struggle because they don't know how to communicate that message that needs to be communicated. Community outreach is so important. And, and Larry has been such an advocate. If, if um, you type in HUD and EPA and Larry Brooks, you will always see him holding a, a trophy or something because he is so well-versed at what he does He delivers that message consistently. He does not deviate, and he is a wealth of knowledge. He's like a human encyclopedia. And I'm so proud that he's a representative for our state association, and that's why we bring folks like Larry on him. He's an expert. We value his opinion and his forethought, and we really appreciate you coming on today, Larry. I, I mean it's been a pleasure and of, of course we're gonna bring you back on another topic. Damn. You know this if we didn't even cover the topic of how do you create uh, uh healthy homes uh you know in your own city or how to you know what does it mean? You know, I mean there's so much stuff we, we need to pick your brain some more. I
1: appreciate that. Yeah, like I said, this was the origin story, like a Marvel uh comic book. We 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 have to have some sequels here Uh, because I I do (laughs) want to talk about some of the things, some some of my lessons in leadership, uh, things I learned uh, in terms of becoming a a code enforcement supervisor and manager. Remember, I started off with no experience at all. I was brought in as a budget analyst to run a program. And then over years of time, I actually ended up going in the field and then eventually becoming a code enforcement officer and then becoming a state certified code enforcement officer which I'm very proud of. Congratulations! Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of like you said, I'm I, oftentimes I tease folks and I say I'm nationally known, but locally obscure. Um, <laughs> there are things that uh, we can talk about in terms of how we end up marketing code enforcement. Pete, you're, you, that's going to be a great conversation because you're one of my role models when it comes to that. And and I do want to uh, get it straight in terms of the community. Uh, It's called the Community Code Enforcement Pilot Program. Look it up uh, in the uh, health and safety codes. And the other one is called the Code Enforcement Incentive Program. We've got to get those types of programs back. We've got to get money into the, the hands of the people who are going out there delivering the services.
0: And, and one of the things that um, we didn't really mention a lot was the your relationship with the EPA and grants. You know, the RRP was a fully uh, funded program that got a bunch of code officers certified in the state. And you were very uh, pivotal in putting that together. Uh, you know, I sat in meetings with you and the EPA and it was just it, it. And what came about it was, you know, we can actually go out and educate the public on, hey, you you didn't cover this. You're not wearing uh, protective gear. You're not, you know, you're not confining your your um your painting area. And people don't realize that there's a lot when you're repainting your house. There's a lot. It's not just some, you know, just painting your house. You have to make sure that if it's uh, pre 1978 when they have that preemption, you, you need you need to make sure that you're protecting not only yourself but your neighbors when you're painting those houses.
1: Yeah, we've had contractors who got lead poison. We've had contractors who have taken the paint dust on their work clothes home with them and their children have ended up lead poisoned. So we we have some tragic stories like that. We have to teach more people how to protect themselves. We have to teach code enforcement officers how to protect themselves. Uh, We we're talking about doing some trainings on how to fit yourself with an N95 mask. So when you're going into a unit where you know there's mold, Or, you know, there's a lot of lead dust. How do you protect yourself? So uh, there's a lot of things that we need to do. Education is key. You know, knowing is half the battle. I I will add I'm I'm in my um, my mom's guest room. Um, I had to leave my own residence because the unit upstairs uh, developed a a leak. The washer dryer uh, unit uh, flooded the room flooded. The water came down into the walls of my unit below. I had to get out, but someone else might not have known that they needed to leave. You know, education is what helps to keep people safe. And fortunately, because I, you know, our, uh, my landlord was well-educated on the issues of mold. They paid for me to move all my stuff into storage while they do the remediate the mold remediation work to get it done properly and they even were willing to put me up into a hotel but i like my mom's cooking. <laughs> so.
0: Well, Larry, well thank you for your time. We appreciate it and we like I, you know when we had the discussion on you on the show, it's like what do we talk about for an hour? I'm like an hour is going to go by so fast. <laughs> You know, it always does. You know, I talked to Lorena on accessibility for an hour. She was like, I was just getting warmed up. <laughs>
1: but, 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 That's you know, yeah, I agree. I know what
0: you're going through. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah I think but, Larry's just warmed up.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so we, and,
2: need, and, we need to have those sequels.
0: <laughs> and, you know, as far as we go, um, I'll definitely, you know, partner with you sooner or later to talk about a bigger mold, you know, maybe a program for code enforcement officers throughout the state. You know, I... I the reason we put these these on here, we give general information. Maybe a legislator is hearing this or a city manager and saying, "Hey, that's a good point. I, maybe I want to act, you know, enact that in my city." Because these programs, believe me or not, you know, we have a couple of people logged in, and then by the end of the week, we have a thousand people that watch this program, and then we get questions, and it's so invigorating to hear that you know somebody actually took something away from these trainings. And that, to me, it's so important that we keep continuing to get the message out and bring guests that have the knowledge and can do that successive, does a successor training because it's important. You know, I'm not going to be here forever and you're not going to be here forever. And you know what? We're finding the next stars in Lorena and Rachel and, you know, Marcus actually was a mentor of mine. And, you know, I, I keep finding people diamonds in the rough, like you say, you know, and And it's just, you know, uh, it's just amazing. And, you know, and I, I, you know, I give a shout out to Chris Wiggin, you know, who is, you know, I'm eventually going to have her on this show. But she was one of the reasons why I'm so I advocate the way I do because, you know, she she's like, oh, yeah, Larry did. I'm like, I know Larry, you know, but she's one of the reasons why I'm so adamant uh, about promoting our profession. I, I learned it from her. You know, she's. Uh, I don't know if she's your role model or if she was. You're her role model, but I know we have that commonality.
1: Chris worked for me, my very first team. That the, those kick-ass women that, that uh, wore the invisible capes, like like these ladies here. Uh, you know, you, Cecilia, um, uh, Rachel you know uh yeah i i through these these webcasts i've met three ladies that i say where we uh invisible capes uh chris wiggins was one of those people with an invisible cape that i told her when she came to work for me in 1993 that one day i would work for her and that day came you know when she became the president of the code enforcement association i went to her and i said i told you one day you would be my boss
0: that's awesome It it's and, you know, I, I, I still keep in touch with her today and years later after she's long gone from the thing. But we always have to remember those origin stories on how we got here and where we're going, because, you know, I'm always looking for the next, you know, person to step up their game as to do, you know, not compete, but step it up and do it better. And, you know, if you got my um, my formula and I'll be happy to share it for, with you. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you Thank again, you. Larry. It's been a pleasure and we will see everybody next time. And this will be available on the podcast. You know, so if you have a long uh, trip like Larry did yesterday, <laughs> you yeah. you can listen to these podcasts. We have uh, every episode from our, our start and we continue to bring great guests and you know we're going national more national on these guests so thank you everybody for joining us and thank you lorena for co-hosting and thank you always a pleasure sir so nice to meet you have a great day all right